following sermon is by Manny Alanese, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel in Northwest San Antonio, Texas. For more information, for prayer, or to support us financially, please visit our website at ststephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. It is the people you love who can hurt you the most. Let us prepare our hearts to hear God's truth through the preaching of his word, which begins with prayer. Let us pray together. Most gracious and omnipotent Father, we are received by you in your holy presence through your divine love. Yes, amen. Love is truly the only word that can best describe our marriage covenant relationship with you. Lord, despite the many times we have stumbled and fallen into sin, your love for us is never ending. So we are here in love to worship you, Almighty One. By your love, the chains of our resistance are are shattered. Speak to us. Penetrate the depths of our souls. Keep our path straight as we seek first the kingdom, your kingdom. In Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's time. It's time. Today's the day. The Super Bowl day. Now, a lot of you don't know what that is, don't even care, but a lot of some of us do. It's interesting. The Kansas City Chiefs. Versus the San Francisco 49ers. It's interesting that in an article that I read this week, San Francisco is on the front page of newspapers for the most part, not just because the 49ers are trying to win their sixth Super Bowl, but for something rather sinister. Something rather really horrible, tragic. The city of San Francisco, by all accounts, including by their own people, is becoming a very horrible place to live. The San Francisco Chronicle, a newspaper there, headlines uh, headlines in the Chronicle reports that San Francisco streets are horrible, and they're only growing in their horror because of drug overdoses. The number of drug overdoses in in San Francisco, one of the most beautiful cities in our nation, is continuing to grow. It is certainly out of hand. Other news outlets report that drugs are sold out in the open. In San Antonio, I mean, not in San Antonio, no, no, in San Francisco. Drugs are sold out in the open right there in in, uh, Tenderloin, in the Tenderloin District. Some of you may be kind of familiar with where that's at. The the drugs and and, and the dealers are out there along with the users. They're all out there. They're sold out in the open. No one does anything about it. Many people are starting to refer to San Francisco 
as as a of debt as this liberal city continues to face this horrible crisis a mother is said to to said that she raised her son up in San Francisco only to lose him only to have the city steal her her son through drugs through the use of drugs drug addicts now okay this is an interesting stat that i ran across drug addicts now outnumber high schoolers in san francisco now san francisco is a big city drug addicts now outnumber high schoolers in that city and in the area a short walk from union square it is reported that in the city's central shopping district, it is commonplace to see sellers, dealers, sellers of drugs. It's also commonplace to see human waste, needles that, that are used with these drugs, and bullet casings littering the streets out in the open. You're, you're, I mean, if you're, if you're as puzzled as I am, you're thinking, why isn't anyone doing anything about it? Well, you got to remember that San Francisco is a very liberal city. They, they're on the cutting edge of what it means to be liberal. I mean, you do whatever you want. Activists in San, in San Francisco argue for the body's autonomy, the body's autonomy, give the body what it wants. And in San Francisco, that's anything, whether it's prostitution or anything, but it includes narcotics, it includes drugs. These advocates claim that people have the right to put whatever they choose to put in their body. That person has the right to do it. That is his body, that is her body, they can do it. And by the I mean, it's on the same lines as that person has the right to do whatever he or she wants when it involves the body, whether that's prostitution or anything else, anything that you can think of. It's the same argument. It's the same belief. These advocacy groups want people to use more drugs. If that's what they're craving, they want them to do it. What, their belief is that abstinence is not will not help, doesn't help. Body autonomy. Advocates, that, that what they do, they cite the drug policies of, uh, uh, of a providence in Canada, great uh, uh, British Columbia in Canada, uh, a providence in Canada. That's the way they look at it, too. They, they have the same type of, uh, of body autonomy policy in their in their city they are known as as the leaders uh, in this field as the leaders of, of harm reduction they're thinking that they're reducing harm by allowing people to do whatever they want to do including drugs especially drugs in british columbia but unfortunately recently in a survey taken recently british columbia set a record for overdose 
deaths due to drug overdoses. So obviously that they're not right what they're doing. But why is this happening? What's going on? Why does this matter to us here in San Antonio or anywhere else in the U.S.? Well, many theologians, many Christian theologians, believe that America is now living in what they call a post-Christian, post-Christian society. America is now a post-Christian nation. This is after being a Christian. Beyond, I guess, if some people might look at it, beyond being a Christian, a post-Christian, that America is now a post-Christian nation. Theologian, a theologian by the name of Dr. Jim Dennison says, when your compass no longer has a, a true north, it points wherever it wants to, wherever it wants to point, and you'll be lost wherever, you, whatever direction you go. In other words, the Lord God Almighty is out of the picture. The Christian God is out of the picture. Christ is out of the picture. It is as though God has given the people who want to turn away from him, the people that don't want anything to do with him, God has given them over to whatever they want, letting them go. Romans 1 talks about that. The Lord God Almighty is out of the picture. Most Americans, it, okay, so if the Lord God Almighty is out of the picture, then most Americans no longer believe in divine absolute truth. What is divine absolute truth? It, it means that truth of what was the truth yesterday, years yesterday, to what is true today is also going to be true tomorrow and beyond. Absolute truth does not change. No matter what people, the people say, it does not change. Well, the Bible uh, gives us, uh, the Bible is absolute truth. It is divine in its origin. Truth is whatever you want it to be. If absolute truth does not exist, truth is whatever you want it to be. Whatever you want it to be. Look, there was a basketball player, NBA basketball player, that recently came out and said, hey, I believe that the, that the earth is flat. And we all got to chuckle out of that. But that's what it means. If that's your truth, then if you believe the earth is flat, then the earth is flat for you. That's not the reality, but that's what you believe. It's nonsense, right? It seems like nonsense. But see, that's the way it is today. If you identify yourself as a female, even though your physical body says you're a male, then you're a female. It's your truth. It's what you want. It's what you want to believe. These are the people you're associating with. That's what's taken over our society. That's what, what's, what's going on in the world we live in, the schools we go to, the, where we work, and even in some of the churches. What's true for you may not be true for me. In today's post-Christian society, God has given us over to our own sinfulness. And what we need to understand is that this is not the first time in biblical history that this has happened. This happened in biblical history. It has happened, as case in point with Hosea, 
and what we read today and what we're getting into, but it's also happened in Christian history. We're Christians. When I say Christians, I mean God's true people. This is the gravest of sins. When you don't believe God's truth, but believe your own truth, you've committed a grave sin. The worst of the worst sins. This is when God's people turn away from the truth of God and seek the truth of what? Idols. Anything that is not that God's truth is an idol. You, you can be an idol. You can idolize yourself, and many of us do. For God's people, worshiping an idol. For God's people, for Christians, worshiping an idol is called spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. That's what we're getting into. That's the book of Hosea. So it's a, this afternoon, we're starting a new sermon series in the book, the Old Testament book of Hosea. Today, I'm just going to give you some background of who Hosea is and, and what the book's about. But in two words, spiritual adultery, that sums it up as to what's going on, what's taking place, especially when we read these first few verses. But who, who was Hosea? Well, verse 1 sums it up. It identifies who he is in the lineage, his lineage, his familial lineage. It identifies Hosea as a prophet, a God's, God's prophet. Hosea is the author of this book. Hosea wrote this book himself. Now, another prophet, other people like the Isaiah maybe, and all the other prophets, they have people, their, their disciples that would follow him around and wrote. Well, Hosea wrote his own book. The book of Hosea's, this is the book of Hosea's personal account of his prophetic message to God's people and the world. By the way, Hosea, uh, again, wrote his own, not only wrote his own book, but he prophesied longer than any other prophet there is. I, some people think he prophesied for 60 years. I mean, it went on for a while. The book of Hosea was probably written in 755, 755 to 725 B.C., before Christ. The purpose of the book of Hosea is to remind the nation of Israel. Okay, let me just stop there and tell you, this is during the time when the people of God divided into two after Solomon. Ten of the tribes went. The northern, they call referred to as the northern kingdom, is referred to as Israel, Israel, Israel. Southern two kingdoms were Judah. Hosea is pretty much, for the most part, prophesying to the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom. He spends his time up there, but he does spend some time in the southern kingdom. The purpose of Hosea's writing is to remind the nation of Israel, to remind God's people, even the southern kingdom, but to remind God's people, that would be us, that our God is a loving God, that his love is unwavering. 
in his loyalty to his covenant people. What we're going to get into is, is going to almost be overwhelming as we see God's love for us. Because he refers to us as adulterers. He refers to us three times in verse 2. He refers to the nation of Israel, to God's people. He refers to us as what? Whoredom. Whoredom. Harlots. Prostitutes. Prostituting themselves to other gods. This, these words are not mere words. They're used very intentionally to, to bring out an image of how severe it is to have an idol, to worship other gods. And we're, it's easy for us to talk about the days that back then, centuries ago, the nation, the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, it's easy to say, it was them, it was them, it was them. It's us today. The northern kingdom, not only did they have Yahweh, that Yahweh was their gods, they decided they were going to have other gods too. It was syncretism. They, they synchronized Yahweh's words with gods from other religions. That goes on today. That happens today. The sad thing about some of that is some people don't realize that. I know many people, that, as you do, who do not read Scripture, do not attend church. They have come up with their own religion, but they think it's Christianity, and so call it Christianity. But their image of what Christianity is is tainted by all this other stuff that they were that they heard about, or they read about, or their, maybe their parent taught them, or, or somebody else that they trusted taught them. They think that's Christianity, and it's not. It's going on today. God refers to that as whoredom. Think about that. How? I mean, that's not a word you can just, oh, God, you know, man, let's not talk about that. God's talking about it. An adulteress. You're an adulteress if you're doing that. No, I'm not an adulteress, man. I really love Jesus. I, I do. I love him. I just think that some of the stuff that I've heard about it, I've read in Scripture, maybe, maybe, I don't think it's true. I don't want to believe that. So I just kind of blended into what I think is true. That's whoredom. That's adultery. You're committing adultery against God himself, against Christ. That's the severity of the book of Hosea. That is how severe spiritual adultery is. Anyone who's married, ever been married, realizes that the marriage covenant, the Christian marriage covenant, is between uh, is a very sacred thing, very intimate, as as intimate, more intimate than anything else you can imagine. Okay, it's it, the Bible refers to God's people and God in the Old Testament as God being the bridegroom and his people being the bride. Now, let me just quickly go over some, some of the things that the Old Testament talks about. These are just some verses that, that refer to God being the bridegroom and the people being the bride. In uh, Isaiah 20, uh, 60, 62, verse 5, it says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. 
as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Hint, hint. God is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2 says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Uh, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how, a, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through the land not sown. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32 says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, but they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now we're getting an image. Now we're getting an image of the intimate relationship that God has with you, with you, with you, Christian. It is like a marriage. Now, Okay, I want to make sure you we get real clear about this. Believe it or not, some marriages here on earth, including with Christian marriages, are not that good. They're just like, man, they need a lot of work. You know some. So don't compare it to don't compare it to your marriage. Okay, you can. You can be good because that's the only thing you got to compare with. That's okay. But there are some marriages that are pretty tough. And not doing well. And there is divorce even among Christians, okay? But we're talking about the ideal marriage. We have the, the, the bridegroom, God himself, and his people. But that's not only in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. The Bible, the New Testament, identifies who this bridegroom is. Who is it? Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. Who is the bride? His people. The church the bridegroom, and the, this intimacy. Okay, can you imagine being a married person? Your significant other, your spouse, cheating on you with a number of people, having children from somebody else. That's what it's talking about. That's what Jose is talking about. That's what God is talking about. God is telling his people, that is what you've done. You committed spiritual adultery. How much more serious can we get? How in how much more damage can we do to God? Not much more. Well, we I mean, there are people that turn their back completely on God and he gives them over. Well, he's gonna give the nation of Israel over to their sinfulness because they're gonna be conquered by the Assyrians. The New Testament, just real quick, refers to Jesus being the bridegroom and the, the church believers being the bride. In Matthew 9, uh, verse 15, it says, Jesus answers, how can, the, uh, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they shall fast. And then in John 3, 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends, who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And Ephesians, uh, the marriage part of Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives just as, as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Revelation chapter, chapter 19 says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, uh, was given to her to wear. Now again, that's in the New Testament. Those, those are those are how we know. That's how we know who is who's who's uh, uh, Hosea talking about. He's talking about God. He's talking about His people. That this close intimacy between uh, a married couple, and how horrible it is. When the spouse, one of the spouses commits adultery. When we worship false gods. When the true and living God is not our first and foremost. And we look to things, to other things to satisfy our need, we are committing spiritual adultery. The Lord God Almighty sees it, spiritual adultery. Again, the intimacy that God has for his people is like the intimacy of a bride and a bridegroom. But it, but it, it is so powerful that his love for us is unwavering. Like here on earth, we divorce. And there's divorce among Christians. There is. And God allows it because we're such broken people. But what does God do in this case? This is how wonderful God is. God sent someone to reconcile all this. He sent his son to reconcile this brokenness, to die for our sinfulness, and to bring us back as a married couple, as a, as, as a as a husband-bride relationship. Now I realize that it's tough for some of us, some of us who are not married to understand a, a marriage relationship, but you could also look at your parents or somebody you know who's married. But again, talking about marriage and talking about how, how special a godly marriage is, Christians, before they get married, are told to do what? No sex outside the marriage bed. Oh, God, man, how many, yeah, yeah, come on, Manny, that is, Pastor Manny, that is like almost laughable. That's old school. Yeah, new school, it's okay. That has never been repealed in the Bible. Fornication, marriage outside the, uh, the marriage bed is still a sin. But see, that's how sacred a marriage is. Can you imagine a young lady? I'm going to use a young lady because I'm a young man. Okay, I'm a man. Come on. Can you imagine a young lady growing up in a godly home being told, you're special. You're special. You belong to Christ. You all this stuff that you're seeing on TV about sex and all that other stuff, that's not you. That's the world. That's how the world thinks. You don't think like that. You're saving yourself for something, someone very special who the Lord will bring to you. 
Can you imagine how sacred that is? Well, can you imagine a young man, young man, having a relationship with a young lady that happens all the time, goes on, that's okay, dating or whatever. And let's say it gets a little intimate here, which is kind of on the borderline of sinning, but let's say the young lady decides, well, okay, maybe you're the one. We're not married, but maybe you're the one. So, and this is thinking broad, okay? I'll give myself to you. What if that young man said, no, I cannot treat you like that. I have to answer to, to a king. But not only that, I, I care about you. I, I don't want to defile you. Can you imagine thinking like that? Well, that's a godly way of thinking. That's how we should raise our children to think. That is a blessed way of thinking. God will not only bless that young man, he will bless that young woman. Now, is it easy? No, it's not easy. It's incredibly hard, and it goes against everything else that we see on TV and everywhere else. That's the intimacy that God has for his people. It is that intimate. Is that wonderful? He is wonderful. When a spouse cheats on the other spouse, it goes back to what I talked about earlier. It is the people you love who can hurt you the most. Isn't that true? The people you love dearest, the one that the one you love the most, that would be your spouse if you're married. That's the one that's going to hurt you the most when that happens. That can devastate you. It can be devastating. Adultery can be devastating marriage. Now, they, now, by God's grace, we can overcome, and we do overcome by his grace. The story of Hosea, this is a story where, where God has to illustrate the hardness of spiritual adultery to his people. So what does he do with his prophet? He tells his prophet, go and marry a whore. Go and marry a, 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 a woman of whoredom, a prostitute. And, and the people were looking at this prophet, Hosea, and going, isn't he God's prophet? What's he doing? As we get into the book, it's going to be it's going to be very revealing how God has put up with with this stuff. How she sells herself to other people. How he has to buy her off an auction. I mean, it is going to get into details into this stuff. Hosea is told to go out and marry a person, a woman of boredom. No, everybody knows that she, she's that prostitute. She's that prostitute. Everybody knows who she is, and he knows, but he has to marry her. That is how God paints the picture for us of what is going on between his relationship and the relationship with his so-called people. Why would God do that? Why would God do that to even take the time to do that? Would he just condemn everybody? See, this is beyond us. I don't know. I do know. He loves us. He's chosen his people. How do you explain it? He loves us. He's God. He's chosen us. 
He's gonna, he's gonna reconcile us, and he does through his son. What a wonderful God! What a wonderful and loving God. Just real quick, the, the northern kingdom of Israel committed whoredom, committed worship to other gods. They worshiped the golden calf. They worshiped Baal and Asherah. These were poles that they would put on trees and they would worship them along with God. They would worship the queen of heaven. Think about that. They would bake bread to the queen of heaven. Asherah. And then they would go to the temple and call the temple, God's temple. They would go there and call it their temple. Or they were doing all this other stuff. As if God is as if God doesn't know or something. I mean, that's, that's a little God. That is not the true and living God. So as a result, the northern kingdom was taken into ca captivity by the Assyrians about 150 years before the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. The Lord does not take the sin of spiritual adultery lightly. Why? Why not? Because it's spiritual adultery is committed personally against him. It's a personal thing. Your we are his right. And we're sinning against him. Is he not to feel that? Is he not to feel that pain? He does. Even us who, 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 who belong to him and, and, and fall and stray away. Do you not think that that's hurting him? That's hurtful for him? Oh, he's God. He can take it. He was a man. He walked this earth. He felt pain. He was beaten within one inch of his life, and then he was crucified. He feels pain. He feels the pain of a loved one cheating on him and worshiping another God. How do we know when we're doing that? Well, when you when you know you're doing that when you're doing something that is against God. And you know it's against him, but you want to do it anyway. Some of us big thinkers say, ah, he'll forgive me. If you belong to him, he will forgive you. You're forgiven already if you believe in Christ. But do you not think it causes pain? To the one you love the most? Do you think that your separation from him causes him pain when you separate from the one you love the most and the one he loves the most? You know, so often we think God's going to punish you, God's going to punish you, you know, you're just going to get what you deserve, he's going to punish you on this side of heaven, even if you go to, you know, heaven, he'll still punish you. But we never think about how what we're doing is hurtful. To the one we love the most. And when we do think about that, it gets to us. It gets to our heart. It breaks our heart because we've broken his heart. And as we go and as we walk on this path of righteousness called sanctification, we go through these ups and downs and we, and we repent of our sinfulness and we come back in good graces with him and we keep going. And as you live your life, these Valleys will lessen because you do not want the separation. Like, how can I do that to the one I love the most? 
And you're not worried about being condemned. It, that kind of goes away. At first, you can be first, you're like, hey, maybe I'm not saved. But after a while, the Holy Spirit gives you this feeling that you belong to Christ. It's the Spirit. It's God himself doing that. So after a while, you have this affection for him. And, and you don't anything that comes between you and Christ, you want nothing to do with it. Now, if you get married, you join with your husband or wife together as a try, you know, God, that God, Jesus talked about it in Ephesians 5, how you come together with Christ and the marriage. But you cannot take, you cannot hurt the one you love the most. You just can't take it. It's the, it's, the, it's the person you love the most. It is a personal thing. The one you love the most when you commit spiritual adultery leaves a bitter, revolting taste in his mouth. When we commit spiritual adultery, it is a dreadful, obscene image in God's eyes. Can you imagine? Submitting to your own idols, even yourself, how that image can, can be dreadful and obscene to God. Going back to the Super Bowl. The Kansas City kicker, uh, Harrison uh, Butker, was asked a question. How do you handle the pressure of having to kick the game-winning field goal? I mean, it's pressure, right? It's got to be pressure. The game's on the line, and you got to make it. And if you don't make it, you lose. But if you make it, Super Bowl. So they asked him, how do you, hey, how do you handle it? You, and you know what he says? He says this. He says, I may, okay, I may fear about it. I might have pressure, but I know I'm a child of God, and he's going to protect me. And maybe that protection comes with some suffering, but that's what's best for me. And I've got to accept the suffering and grow as best I can with that. He's a child of God. He could be the goat. And he knows he's accepted. Ah, what's wonderful. So what do you need to hear? Well, the critical issue about the book of Hosea is, there we say it again, spiritual adultery. So how do we commit spiritual adultery? Well, we, when we commit spiritual adultery, we do something against Christ. So how do we, what do we do? How do we prevent that? How do we prevent that from happening? Is that possible? How do we avoid spiritual adultery? Well, we have to set our minds on the things above. Jesus tells us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Spiritual adultery committed by God's people, his bride against the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, highlights how deeply we hurt the one who loves us the most. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we do stop to thank you for your You've been listening to Manny Alanese, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel. For more information about our church, visit our website at ststephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. Please join us prayerfully and financially as we seek to glorify God by preaching His Word and spreading the gospel of grace in boldness and selflessness.